I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We take up chapter 7, talking about Melchizedek, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually." Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Well, Melchizedek was introduced, first of all, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now it's time to fully develop Melchizedek, the high priest of, well, everyone, not just Hebrews. Paul had taken an aside from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, all the way down to chapter 6, verse 20, regarding their immaturity in the principles of the faith. Now in verse 1 of chapter 7, he again takes up the issue of Melchizedek. So here's the deal. Hebrew priests came from the tribe of Levi. Prophetically, however, the Messiah must be a descendant of the same tribe, which is Judah, as King David, since he's to be his descendant. Though technically the original high priest was not Aaron, but the original high priest was Melchizedek, all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24, that's when Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham after battle. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. That incident precedes the appointment of Aaron, who was a Levite, to the priesthood by hundreds of years. Then David, in his messianic psalm, Psalm 110, says the following in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this concept was not new by revelation to Paul. It was an old established principle of Scripture that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. Now Paul describes Melchizedek in a very interesting way in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. He says he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Some scholars have sought to explain this away as simply a figure of speech, but the attributes listed in these verses are so specific I can only assume that God incarnate is being described here. Now work with me here. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, For in him, being Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I make what I consider to be a solid assumption based upon that verse and others regarding the deity of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Jesus Christ is the only physical body that the Godhead has ever had. If you agree with that assumption, then Melchizedek must have been a manifestation of Jesus Christ himself when he appeared to Abraham. That is, unless, of course, you want to develop a doctrine that God has had another human form other than that of Jesus Christ, 
and I personally prefer not to make that trip with you. So if you can accept the supernatural priesthood of Melchizedek, and really, why couldn't you? Then it just makes sense to Paul and to us that the supernatural priesthood and not the earthly priesthood of Aaron should be represented by the Messiah. This supernatural priesthood, first seen in Genesis chapter 14, precedes that of Aaron and runs through the ages as the true supernatural priesthood. So, you see, Jesus Christ fulfills prophecy by being a high priest as well as a king after the lineage of David. That's the point of chapter 7, the eternal sinless priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, with that overview, let's look more closely at the passage. In verse 1, we see that uh, he was referred to as king of Salem, talking about Melchizedek also the priest of the Most High. Also, he came out and met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Then in verse 2 of this chapter, Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, which by interpretation also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Then in verse 3, he's described as without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, And then it says, made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And then finally in verse 4, we read, even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Here's what amazes me. With a list of attributes like those in verses 1 through 4, there are still those who maintain that Melchizedek was a mere human serving as king of Jerusalem. There is no doubt that Jerusalem was in existence in Genesis 14, of course, but based upon its Babylonian name of Ura Salim, the city of Salem, one is led to conclude that its inhabitants in Abraham's day were all polytheistic pagans. We know that it was a Jebusite stronghold before King David captured it. Instead, Paul interprets the reference to Salem in Genesis fourteen eighteen with the Hebrew equivalent for the word peace, making it a figurative reference in verse 2, in other words, king of peace. The fact that Abraham recognized him as a priest by giving him tithes seals the deal for Paul when he mentions the fact in verse 4. Furthermore, Paul's intentions in verse 3 seem unmistakably aimed at proving to his readers that Melchizedek was no mere human. Those attributes of eternal existence, well, they only apply to God himself. Now let's continue reading with verse 5. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Paul uses the tithe of Genesis fourteen eighteen as his proof that Abraham recognized Melchizedek as the heavenly, as opposed to earthly high priest. Before and after Aaron's priesthood, he does so here in verses 5 through 10. Now here's the reasoning Paul proposes. Here it is. Abraham, the father of the Levites, paid tithes to Melchizedek as the high priest. That being the case, Melchizedek is better, he says in verse 7. That priest, Melchizedek, still lives, he says so in verse 8. 
Therefore, the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, the point of verses 9 and 10, thus making his priesthood superior to that of the Levites. This proposition only works when we recognize that Melchizedek is eternal in this context. If, as some contend, Melchizedek was a mere human back in Abraham's day, well, this whole proposition makes no sense whatsoever. Now, verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever." To the Hebrews, this effective termination of the Levitical priesthood is a potential deal-breaker. Why is that? Well, because the Levitical priesthood is an integral part of the Mosaic law. They go hand in hand. You can't void one without the other. Well, that does seem to be a problem, doesn't it? Well, not really. Since Christ fulfilled the law, according to Matthew five seventeen and 18... That's the issue that Paul tackles in verses 11 through 28 here, the termination of the Levitical priesthood and the law that mandates it. A key verse to this section is verse 17, which quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. That verse says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That messianic declaration by David invokes the eternal existence of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, that being said, here's the question of verse 11. Why was it necessary for the priesthood of Melchizedek to be continued and not the priesthood of Aaron? Well, the short answer is in verse 12. The priesthood changed because the law changed. Verses 13 and 14 point out that Levitical priests are descendants of Aaron, but Jesus was a physical descendant of Judah. 
However, Jesus is a priest after Melchizedek, not according to Mosaic law. We see that in verses 15 through 17. Then in verses 18 and 19, we get a general assessment regarding the current status of the Mosaic law, insomuch as there has been an annulling of the former commandment. That word annulling there comes from the Greek word athetesis, which means cancellation. So why has the law been annulled? Well, verse 19 tells us the law made nothing perfect. It goes on to say that the bringing in of a better hope did. That better hope is Jesus Christ. Now for another contrast between the Aaronic priesthood and that of Melchizedek being Jesus. We see it in verses 20 through 24. Levitical priests were not selected with an oath, but Jesus was, according to Psalm 110, verse 4. There it says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and there's your oath. Verse 22 succinctly says, By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The Greek word for surety there is ingus, which means guarantor, and the Greek word for covenant, diatheke, is also sometimes translated testament, you know, as in New Testament and Old Testament, New Covenant, Old Covenant. The priesthood of Melchizedek was established by God himself with a covenant, an oath, if you please. Verses 23 and 24 address the permanence of the Melchizedek priesthood compared to the Levitical priesthood. There were many Levitical priests because they kept dying. However, verse 24 says, But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Do you still wonder if Melchizedek was Jesus after a statement like that? Verses 25 through 27 emphasize that Jesus is perfect and eternal, while verse 28 tells us that those, well, those Levitical priests, they were mere mortals, with their own sin to deal with as well. As we move into chapter 8, one verse from chapter 7 needs to stick in our minds. That's verse 12, and it says, for the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Let's look at this major change of the law, and it's in chapter 8. A better mediator and a better covenant. Verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Paul told us in chapter 7, verse 12, that we were in for a major change with regard to the law. To ease us into it, he begins chapter 8 with a summation of his argument from chapter 7. So let's read those first two verses of chapter 8 again. Here's what they say. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Obviously, Jesus is the high priest of verse 1, and he's seated in heaven where the true tabernacle. To see that where the true tabernacle is located, that's in contrast to the tabernacle temple that's on the earth. Now, here's the picture. Old covenant meant temporary priest and temporary tabernacle. New covenant means eternal priest and true heavenly tabernacle. Well, verses 3 through 5 go on to add that the Levitical priest had prescribed offerings, that Jesus made one offering once and for all. That implication is found in these three verses. But the actual statement appears later in this discourse when he says in chapter 10, verse 10, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul makes the point in verse 5 that Moses was working from a pattern when he built the tabernacle, as he quotes Exodus chapter 25, verse 40. That verse says, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now that pattern, Paul asserts, was taken from the true tabernacle in heaven. So what is this change with regard to the law of Moses? Well, it's the provisions of the new covenant which replace the provisions of the law of Moses found here in verses 6 through 12. However, it's not a revolutionary new idea. Paul's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Well, there you have it, the terms of the new covenant with Israel. The new covenant consists of an inward law written unto one's heart rather than an, an external law like the law of Moses. It's actually a description of New Testament salvation in Christ. The complete fulfillment of the covenant for the Jews actually doesn't take place until every Jew is saved under its conditions, those are the conditions that will, by the way, exist for the first time on the first day of the millennium. So while we are today saved by its conditions, the whole nation of Israel, per the covenant, will not be saved by those conditions until the millennium. Paul explains that this new covenant is administered by the Messiah. In setting up this new covenant before his readers, Paul explains that the Messiah, in verses 1-7, through 7, is not working from a pattern of true things like Moses and Aaron, but he's working with the true things themselves in heaven. So here's the picture. The Old Testament tabernacle was a picture of the true tabernacle in heaven. The Old Testament priest was a picture of the true priesthood. So let's get a peek ahead at a verse in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 24. Here's what that verse says. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, the Old Testament priesthood and law were temporary provisions from God until the permanent solution arrives, Jesus Christ himself. Paul's telling these Hebrew Christians this. He's saying, the permanent solution is here right now. So what do we do with the Old Covenant, the priesthood, and the keeping of the law. Well, look at verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant, 
He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Well, the problem is this. These Hebrew Christians were hanging on to the law of Moses. They just had trouble turning loose. And that's why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. As we move to chapter 9, let's review the tabernacle and temple. And that's what we do in the first 10 verses. Verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which was called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So Paul uses the first seven verses to describe the tabernacle and the temple set up and the function of the Aaronic high priest and the other priest with him. He caps off this description with a reference to the activity of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, described in Leviticus chapter 16. Why was it necessary that the high priest do the same sacrifice each year and every year? Well, he gives the answer in verse 8 when he says, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Verse 9 tells us this, says, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. In other words, no perfection was attained in the process on the Day of Atonement or any other day of the year. If you'd like to review the Old Testament tabernacle, then look at my notes on Exodus chapter 25, and you'll even see some photos of some replicas there. Incidentally, let's make a point of clarification here on Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. The Ark of the Covenant's contents are described in this verse as being the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That was certainly true in the period being discussed here, but later on, two of these three items had disappeared out of the Ark. By the time the Ark was moved into its new home, Solomon's temple, Second Chronicles 5.10 says this, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. The same statement of fact is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9. Somewhere between Aaron and Solomon, the rod and the manna had been removed. Verse 10 has an interesting statement regarding the appropriate time for the termination of those sacrifices made in that Old Testament tabernacle, is what he specifies. He says, until the time of Reformation. The Greek word for Reformation there, deorthosis, is only used here in the New Testament, only in this particular passage. It means to set straight. That undoubtedly refers to the moment when the New Covenant took effect at the time of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Now we see in chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, that we have your perfection right here. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance." So what do we do about the perfection problem raised in the first ten verses of this chapter? Notice verse 11. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. This calls for a supernatural solution, and Jesus Christ is that solution. These verses compare the less-than-perfect rituals of Aaron and his descendants, the priests, those outlined in the first ten verses, compared with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 through 15 draw a comparison on sacrifices, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, the blood of a sinless Jesus in the New Testament. Incidentally, the word testament and covenant are exactly the same word in the Greek. They're both translated from the word diatheke. Those sacrifices are found in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. The ashes of a heifer reference in verse 13 is explained in Numbers chapter 19. Now we continue reading with verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law... He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Well, admittedly, the argument Paul makes in verses 16 to 23 is a little difficult to follow, but it's really, it's really quite simple. Just as the old covenant involving the tabernacle and the priest was validated by the blood sacrifice of animals, the new covenant is validated by Jesus Christ himself with his own sacrificial blood. The high priest made annual sacrifices on the Day of Atonement on behalf of all the people. Christ offered one blood sacrifice, being his own blood, and that was sufficient for all time. The key verse here is verse 24. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. There is no earthly replica for Christ. Only the real tabernacle in heaven will do. So you see... The Old Testament sacrifices were pictures of a perfect sacrifice to come, Christ himself, and by the way, just once. 
Now verse 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Verses 24 through 28 here make another differentiation between the covenants, the efficacy of the sacrifices themselves. This becomes an important point moving into the discussion found in chapter 10. So here's the contrast. Old Testament sacrifices were offered over and over again, but Jesus was sacrificed just one time. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement is in view here in verse 25 when the high priest offered a sacrifice for sins each year on that Day of Atonement as specified in Leviticus chapter 16. Now get ready for a new paradigm in worship, the single sacrifice for sin being Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Paul uses the last few verses of this chapter to set this argument up in chapter 10. A single pay sacrifice was a foreign concept to a Jew. The old covenant provided that a single sacrifice simply wouldn't do it. Repeated sacrifices was standard practice back then. However, there was just one Christ and just one sacrifice. So what will we do about this dilemma? How does one reach perfection? Well, the answer is in chapter 10. Incidentally, many like to use verse 27 in many applications regarding death so as to say that all men die once. Of course, that is the way of nature. However, Paul himself in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 and 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 58, he identifies a whole generation of believers who will not in fact die. Those are the ones who will be raptured without dying. In chapter 10, we read about a once-and-for-all sacrifice, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God." Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, 
For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now you simply must pay close attention to verse 1 of this chapter. It says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Now that's the problem. The law could make no one perfect, but Christ's sacrifice could. Paul here quotes from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He does so in verses 5 through 8 of this chapter where he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Verses 9 and 10 make it clear that the old sacrificial system's over. In reality, many Jewish Christians kept making those sacrifices at the temple. That's one big feudal practice Paul's correcting with this book of Hebrews. Of course, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, well, that practice stopped. In verses 11 through 14, the distinction between Christ and those Aaronic priests is again emphasized with his reference to Psalm 110, which, by the way, was regarded by all Jews as clearly referring to the Messiah. The footstool reference of verse 13 is clearly from Psalm 110.1. That verse says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then there's the function of the priest. That's gone also. Jesus made the once-for-all sacrifice, and we put those priests of the temple out of work. In verses 15 through 18, he then reiterates the conditions of the human heart as a result of the new covenant, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is a follow-up to what he said in Hebrews chapter 8. It's all written inside our hearts now. Let's read verses 19 through 23 now. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Well, these verses, verses 19 through 23, itemize the process. We are our own priest. There's no room for someone else to do it for us. Christ is the high priest who made the sacrifice once and for all. Verse 19 would have been quite inflammatory to the priest and observant Jews of the day, a commoner's entrance into the Holy of Holies. That authorizes believers to go where only Aaronic priests went before, and that's our promise from God. The veil of verse 20, that's the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, is passed through by believers through his flesh, the death of Jesus on the cross. He then therefore is our high priest, we see in verse 21. Just as the priests were consecrated in Leviticus chapter 8 through blood sprinkling and washing, so are believers consecrated in Jesus Christ, we see in verse 22. Our hearts are sprinkled and our bodies are washed with pure the Greek word katharos, pure water. Just as there was a physical washing in uh, Leviticus chapter 8, this verse identifies a true spiritual washing as a result of Jesus' sacrifice. 
Verse 23 then emphasizes that believers should rest without wavering, rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then we see no relapse for these Hebrew Christians in verses 24 through 39. Verse 24, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated." For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back... My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Verses 24 and 25 encourage positive Christian fellowship among believers. The emphasis here is that Christians should meet regularly, at which time they exhort. Parakaleo is the Greek word there. It means to stand along beside and call. They exhort or encourage or console one another. The day that approaches is undoubtedly a reference to the catching away of believers seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The terminology in this passage has caused some folks to conclude that these verses are talking about enlightened but not saved Hebrews. I simply don't concur there. Verse 26 says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, receiving the knowledge of the truth, coupled with no more sacrifice for sins, well, that tells me that these are saved people. Lost people could, in some respect, have a knowledge of the truth, but without having been saved, they would not have already appropriated Christ as the sacrifice for their sins. Therefore, the phrase, no more sacrifice for sins, simply, well, it couldn't be applied to a lost person. I'm convinced that this is the same scenario as we saw back in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. As a matter of fact, it's a continued discussion from Hebrews chapter 6 here in chapter 10. Paul goes on to explain how the Israelites were dealt with who spurned the law. It was physical death. This line of thought continues into chapter 11 with examples of perseverance and into chapter 12 with an indisputable explanation of chastisement of believers when they sin. And that's in Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8. This same chastisement of disobedient believers is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34, 
and there it resulted in physical death for those believers who insist on the continuation of the rejection of God's exhortations. Add to that the quote in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. It says, The Lord will judge his people. How could Paul be talking about lost people here? But what about the fire, verse 27? Ain't that hell, you might ask? Well, nah. God's judgment is often expressed with an image of fire. Just look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 15. All the fire you can handle there, and it's talking about saved people. Look at the reference to believers and fire in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. No lost people there either. Hey, don't jump to conclusions. Fire doesn't always mean hell. Here it's an obvious reference to physical chastisement. Read carefully verses 32 through 39. Those are not almost saved people. They're saved. So to recap, Paul is telling these Hebrew Christians to persevere. Don't revert back to your sinful past. To do so will result in physical chastisement from God. I'm convinced that nobody's going to hell in this passage. Finally, a word of explanation is fitting for verse 39. The Greek structure in this verse doesn't flow well in English without the addition of some words. So let me give you a word-for-word substitution, Greek to English, without the addition of any of those extra words. Here it is. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, being the inner life. The we there indicates that Paul is talking about himself and those laboring with him. While perdition, rather than pernicious ways, definitely holds a little different connotation in English, I'm convinced that the context of verses 32 to 38, uh, that context is talking about lifestyle rather than destination. Either is a valid usage without consideration for context, but we must read it in context. The Greek word commonly used for save is sozo. It's not used here. Instead, parapoesis is used. The connotation of that word is preservation. In short, I'm certain that Paul is speaking of living a life of faith that preserves the inner life, the soul, in one's Christian walk. This verse makes no reference whatsoever to the possibility of losing one's salvation. I'm certain of that. He uses this verse to introduce a life of faith, which is the subject of chapter 11. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.